Hello, this is Alex Granado, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you're listening to Ed Talk. Today we're talking with Andy Baxter. He is the Vice President for Educator Effectiveness at the Southern Regional Education Board. Andy, thank you for joining me. Uh, good to be here. Um, so, Andy, this week we are running a series of articles on teachers of color and kind of the importance of students of color having teachers of color. Uh, but what I wanted to talk to you about today is some research you did that kind of gets at this whole um, angle of what allows for, for kids to perform well in school, how do they get high-quality teachers and that sort of thing. And, um, and I'm just going to ask you to kind of go into it. We were talking about it uh, off, off podcast. So just tell me a little bit about this research into, into how students get high-quality teachers and kind of the, the unexpected ways that that might happen. Yeah, sounds good. So I worked for uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools from about uh, 2008 to 2012 in that time range. And we, we got looking at the patterns of, um, of matching of students with their teachers and the quality of the teachers that they had based on the students' characteristics. And the idea was just everybody should have uh, equal shot at least with our highest performing teachers and we knew we might have some issues like there are in a lot of places where there are in high poverty schools we might have fewer of the highest performing teachers um, and we did find some of that but I think the thing that we were really surprised to find is that even within schools, so the same group of teachers within the school, the same students within the school, students who were coming into the year low performing tended to be assigned either first-year teachers or teachers with uh, a low performance rating in the prior year. And it really opened our eyes, you know, uh, to, to why that might be going on within a school. Was it uh, a matter of seniority among the teachers. So teachers felt like, well, I, you know, quote, paid my dues, and so now I teach the more advanced classes. Um, was there a sense of um, just, was there a sense of maybe the students' parents weren't advocating or didn't even know to advocate for certain teachers, and so some students' parents were doing that, and this was the result? Uh, what we did know was that it was really having a dramatic impact on the academic trajectories of those lowest performing students. You, you come in like a, you're a student and you come in and you may be two years under grade level and then you get a teacher who at least by one measure, a, a value-added measure, was um, having students who were falling behind even more compared to an average teacher then you just think like, well, those students who are coming in behind, they're just going to slide further behind. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the conversation around this issue has to do with how do we get high-quality teachers into low-performing schools. Kind of uh, the barrier that people see is actually getting the teachers into the schools to get them to the students. But what you're talking about is an actual divide within the schools and actually getting the already high-quality teachers in the school into the classes where the students need them. Um, and so, and so you, you looked to see why this was happening. That's right. The, um, you know, there is this, I would say, uh, it's one of these myths 
that um, has some basis in like in reality, like a lot of things. But we found, at least using the the value added measure, so the contribution of that a teacher makes to the changes in the test scores of his or her students, we found really high uh, impact teachers in all of our schools um, across the board, uh, whether they were low poverty or high poverty. Although we would, we would say that in the lower poverty schools, you might have more. So we found, so even within a school, when you find that how the question for the school would be, what can you do to ensure that these lowest performing students kind of coming into the year are able to at least get a shot at the highest performing teachers that are within that school? That seems to be something that, one, um, doesn't take a lot of money to fix. That's mostly a scheduling issue. It doesn't require new people moving to the school or new big new district programs. It just requires a look, and it would be a little bit hard, right, from uh, the standpoint maybe of an adaptive change. Like there's a pattern within that school that's working for a lot of the teachers uh, and for the principal and for some of the parents, and you you would be pushing on that pattern a little bit. So we encouraged one one approach that we took was just providing the information. So imagine you're the person in charge of doing the schedule at a large middle school. You may not know what the student's prior exposure has been to to high quality teaching, but if we could show you this student had for three years in a row has had a teacher in the bottom 25% of performance in the district, and you have the ability to give that student a top 25% teacher this year, knowing that can help you kind of disrupt the pattern for, for that student. So some of it was just providing the information and putting, um, putting some accountability. So providing the information and accountability for acting, acting on it. So part of it was an awareness issue. You That's know, right. the hope is once you bring awareness to the school, they'll do something to remedy it. Right. But looking at the cause of how it happens in the first place, you found kind of an interesting reason or, or contributing factor to why this was happening. Right. I think that we, so, so we, we didn't do anything um, completely scientific to say, like, this is the one reason. But one reason that we uh that we heard, we talked to people, like what might happen. And some of the principals did did say that the parents um, who sometimes are would be the most knowledgeable about different teachers within the school uh, because they were involved in PTA kind of things or just active in the school or new parents who had been there before, they would have a lots of conversations oftentimes informal like maybe in the line to pick up the kids in the in, you know in a, like an elementary or middle school situation and they were putting pressure on the principals that their students would be in certain teachers class classes and low performing students sometimes didn't have that that advocacy for them and so sometimes it was just easier I mean, I don't think any person doing the scheduling would be proud of this, but you can it's human and you can see how it happens. You just are hearing constantly from this one group of parents. You're like, oh boy, all right, well, I'm just going to give them the, those teachers and these other students I'm not hearing from. 
I'm just going to put them here. You know, who knows how it will work out. You know, you could just see how somebody would fall into that trap. We just saw that it was that that trap was happening over and over again, not just in a single year to these group of students, but year after year. And no wonder they were falling further and further behind. And so, you know, if it's parents maybe in these school lines to drop off their kids who, who are having that opportunity to advocate, then parents of, you know, um, low-income children whose kids ride the bus, well, those parents aren't there. The bus driver's dropping them off, so they don't have the opportunity to talk to the principal. That's right. So it's a, it's a complicated situation because then you start thinking like, well, is it, if you're a parent, is it bad to advocate for your child? You know, you don't want to create any, I don't think you want to create any scenario where it's somehow wrong for the parent to want what's best for their child and to, within reasonable bounds, advocate for their child. Um, so, so one thing, in addition to just kind of applying some information and some accountability to the principals, we encourage them to think about different ways within the school to ensure that everybody could get access to the highest teacher. So it wasn't necessarily a zero-sum game. Some some parents and kids are going to win and other kids are going to lose. Um, so that's where we started thinking some about how to expand access to the highest effective. You know, if you... In, started to explore things like the opportunity culture model or team teaching other types of ways where um, you want to avoid a situation like in the grand scheme of things in which any kids have are stuck with the low performing teachers um so what were some of the challenges of of trying to do this because this is a the disparities in access to the highest effective teachers um, was something that was in complete control of the school. So, so much of the things that get in the way of sound education for all kids, the school system maybe can't control. You know, issues around poverty or neighborhood segregation or even, in some cases, enticements to get teachers to move to certain parts of town to to be teachers there um but this this issue really was in control the resources were in the building the people who needed those resources the students they were in the building and so it became more of a issue of will and of being able maybe to ruffle some feathers uh on the on on the part of the principal and perhaps some of the parents, and to really get people to to see the school not just as something there to serve just some of the students, but to serve all of the students. Um, it's a real. That's, it's easy to say, and you hear it. You think, oh, okay, that makes complete. What was so hard about that? But then you just start thinking about it, and the habits over time. Um, you think about issues around teacher compensation and the way that, um, at least so far, it's been relatively stagnant. So when your ability to get pay increases is, is stagnant, then you look for increases in your well-being in other ways. And that might be having a class that may have fewer discipline problems or 
a class where the parents are super engaged or, or what have you. And so you're, you are disrupting some of those mechanisms that people were using to compensate themselves. Well, and it's interesting because, um, you know, before you pointed this out, this was something that was happening largely unintentionally, right? And a lot of times in education, we try to think about changing the things that we're doing on purpose to get different impacts. But we don't think a lot about what might be happening that nobody is aware is happening, you know, and kind of, kind of in the case of what you're talking about, little changes that could have a big impact. Um, so it kind of opens up uh, an interesting avenue for exploration of, of how to improve schools that doesn't require legislation or doesn't require the State Board of Education to intervene, just, just requires some, uh, I guess, introspection on the part of schools and districts. That's right. Uh, so, you know, we, I really credit uh, Peter Gorman, who was the superintendent at the time, for really trying to uncover maybe every stone to look at how might how might we improve the opportunities that the low income low income low performing uh, students were having and he had a real vision about the role of the principal really being a manager um, I mean as a, in addition to an instructional leader and and all the other mantles we put on the principals but the management aspect of really being in control and being intentional about using every tool that the principal has to improve the education. One of those was something as simple as the schedule. All right. Well, Andy, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. We've been talking with Andy Baxter. He's a vice president for educator effectiveness for the Southern Regional Education Board. And I'm Alex Granados, senior reporter for Education NC. And you've been listening to Ed Talk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.